0: we're concerned um, because if our budget is given to us based on the current for- funding that's in place that puts us in jeopardy of potentially losing about 1.3 million dollars and you know when 85 percent of my budget is tied up in personnel cost that that has a huge impact and yet our community in particular needs us to be whole so that as the economy does start to recover as parents are um, able to send their children back to public schools and said so they don't have to serve as their homeschool teachers. Um, folks are going to come back to us. It's just going to be a matter of timing.
1: Hello, I'm Nation Han. I'm the host of this week's edition of the Awake 58 podcast. I have a chance to catch up with Pamela Senegal, president of Piedmont Community College. President Senegal and I discuss a range of topics including one significant under-the-radar issue around nursing board requirements that could have a huge impact on rural community colleges and therefore their communities. We also discussed the digital divide, broadband access, the ways it plays out for rural community colleges, and ultimately we touched on a range of topics around this upcoming legislative session and the agenda that the community colleges are pursuing. Ultimately, I think the core of our conversation is around what is the future of rural community colleges? Particularly in a state like North Carolina, where there are 58 spread far and wide, many of them serving small communities. They're anchor institutions. But what does the community need from them moving forward? We dive in today. tell us about the past year of guiding your college through the pandemic. You know, we obviously um, are sure there are many low points, moments of stress, moments of challenge. Sure, there are some also some high points. So why don't you walk us through a little bit of the past year?
0: You know, it's it's funny. This I was going into my third year and I had made the comment, oh, I'm really starting to get the hang of this. I'm feeling more confident in my role as president. And then the pandemic hit and it changed everything about what we had to do. It didn't change the core of what we do, but it certainly changed how we operated and how I interacted with the community and with the college. So, you know, I think a big part of, I think probably the biggest high is um, it's been the, the quick way that my faculty, that my staff, that my students, everybody pivoted um there was there was a pretty quick acceptance that this is the way things are going to need to be, and people stepped up everywhere. um it was it was impressive. I was blown away at the way that students stepped into it, that faculty and staff, um, and so that's probably my favorite thing. Um, the other part of it that I loved was that we even were able to do professional development, and so faculty who previously not had online uh, as the majority of the way that they were teaching were able to do some great professional development quickly um, and stand up things that are of high quality and then even our students uh, got in on the act and recognized that there was a need among parents and those who would be facilitating learning for Uh, young people in public schools, and they did, as a service project, some Chrome training and Google Meets training, because that's what our public school partners are using. And so just everywhere I looked, um, people stepped up. And that's, that's probably been the most gratifying part of this entire process.
1: Absolutely. Well, tell me a little bit, you know, this is a common question. We know enrollment's down nationally. Community colleges. Can you talk to us a little bit about the impact you all have seen uh, at Piedmont?
0: Yeah. So our enrollments were prior to COVID. We were on an upward trajectory, and for us, that was welcome news because prior to my arrival, we'd had eight years of declining enrollment, and so we were finally on a on an upward traje- trajectory. What we have discovered through this that this isn't like any other um, economic uh, depression sort of issue. But instead, what people are doing is out of an abundance of uh, not knowing what to do with all the unknowns that instead of coming to us for retooling, they've decided to just stand still. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the fact that this isn't something this generation has ever dealt with before, that uh, literally every day we're listening in on on press conferences and we're getting new updated guidance some of it conflicting depending on the day of the week. And so I think that level of uncertainty has really just caused lots of people and it's largely our adults. Um, Actually our our college and career promise enrollments have been pretty consistent, uh, but where we're really losing students, it's in a couple of areas. Certainly it's the prisons. um, And we previously were doing education in three different prisons within our region and that's dropped to zero practically. the second group we're losing are um, our adult basic skills. So those students who don't yet have a high school equivalency, they have by and large disappeared and are not coming And it. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because these are the people that are probably the most affected by um, having their hours cut. They were the people most likely to be in service jobs. And then the third area we're seeing are those students who signed up for career tech programs, where we've had to pivot and make a portion of that um, instruction online or virtual instead of it being a hundred percent hands-on and face-to-face. And what those students have told us is we don't, that's not what we signed up for. We want, we want everything to be hands-on. And so we've worked really hard, especially in areas like cosmetology and welding, our health programs, to make sure that there's a good mix so that we're still getting FaceTime with those students. Um, but as this lingers on even longer, what we're discovering is that even those students in our college transfer classes, so, so maybe it's an English or a psychology or a sociology class that really do lend themselves to online learning, even those students miss that physical face-to-face interaction with their peers, with their faculty members, and so it's wearing on everybody. Um, so we have definitely seen an enrollment decline. We're one of those, I think there are 43 of us out of the 58 that have had um, enrollment declines, either 43 or 48, um, so we're one of those schools. Um, we're concerned um, because if our budget is given to us based on the current for- funding formula that's in place, that puts us in jeopardy of potentially losing about one point three million dollars. And you know, when eighty-five percent of my budget is tied up in personnel costs, that that has a huge impact. And yet, our community in particular needs us to be whole, so that as the economy does start to recover, as parents are. Um, able to send their children back to public schools and said so they don't have to serve as their homeschool teachers, um, folks are gonna come back to us, it's just gonna be a matter of timing. And so we've gotta be prepared to do that. You know, And that's why our, our legislative agenda this year, um, it's never been more critical that our legislative priorities um, receive the funding that we're requesting so right. so we are i think collectively we're all excited we're grateful and appreciative of the federal stimulus money that's coming to north carolina community colleges especially with this latest package it looks as though that's going to give us even more flexibility to be able to continue to do all these additional services so that we can continue to serve students right the, the challenge for us is this so um even with some of that federal funding it typically comes with strings right so part of it is inevitably gonna have to go directly to students. And then the other part, there'll be an institutional portion. Well, at our institution, the institutional portion from those federal dollars isn't enough to close my budget gap, right? And if I use all of those dollars to plug my budget gap, that means all the additional things that I've been spending money on this past year, like the consumable PPEs, the additional simulation software, the additional lab instructors, Um, the, uh, laptops, the hotspots, not just for students, but for some of my faculty and staff who didn't have those things, those capabilities from their homes, um, then where do I fund those things nation that, that becomes the issue for us. And so I think that, that we still have a strong need for budget stabilization. Um, maybe there's a way to level it out. So those schools who didn't experience an an enrollment decline, maybe those schools are taken out of that budget stabilization funding pool. And then other schools who've had a larger impact, uh, those funds only really go to the schools that need it. And so maybe there's some balance there that we can do, but certainly until we're through this, there's certainly a need for us to have some stabilization funding uh, to make sure that we're in a good place to help our communities uh, come through this. Cause in a place like where I am in, in person Caswell, there are no other higher education options. We're, we're it. Um, when employers are coming to this, you know, the employers who are in this area, when they're talking about retraining their workers, upgrading their skills, we're their partner. And so I've gotta be in a position to be able to do that um, now and post pandemic.
1: As the, General Assembly session rolls on and you kind of touched on this earlier. The system's going to request investments or has requested investments in IT. Uh, A fair amount of those requests are non-recurring funds. Some are recurring as well. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the challenges around IT and cybersecurity faced by your college and others, Um, certainly in years past, but I think it's been uh, been particularly put in the spotlight by the transition to online learning uh, during COVID?
0: Yeah. So, you know, this one is one that speaks to my heart because I'm the technology chair for the president's association. And then I get to chair uh, the data governance committee. And then my background, even before I came to community colleges, was in technology. But the thing that we're asking for from the legislature, it's it's a twofold request. Right. So one is to help us replace an aging enterprise system that doesn't provide the functionality that students um, that students are used to having right they are not having we're, we're we're still not going to be able to get them that amazon experience that everyone has come to expect or that um, uber eats experience that everyone's come to expect but we ought to be able to get them a lot closer to a model that is seamless that doesn't require rework by my staff um, and that's consistent that's reliable that Um, will enable students to be able to do end-to-end transactions when they're ready to register for classes. And right now our systems don't do that, right? Um, So that's part of the funding. But the other piece of the funding, and I'm one of the schools that unfortunately in 2020 experienced a cyber attack. Um, And so, you know, from a personal point of view, what we really needed was a cybersecurity officer. We needed someone who every day it's their job to look through the logs, identify things that don't look quite right, um, but to also sort of live in that world and keep up to date and keep current about all the new threats. Because literally what we're teaching students about cybersecurity today, three months from now, it may not be relevant. There may be something new. And so we need people that live in this world and who can better advise colleges about how to harden their infrastructure to make sure that we're protected against those actors that are out there who are seeking to take our personal information um, and use it in ways that are inappropriate. So the second part of what we're asking for in IT is to have a series of regional cybersecurity officers um, that can give us a level of talent most of our institutions don't have. I don't have anyone on my IT department right now who has even a background in cybersecurity. We're having to outsource that function um, and it's expensive. Um, it's, it's incredibly expensive. And it, it makes sense because it's, a, it's such an area of specialization um, that we, you know, it's just not something we can, we can afford. Prior to that becoming uh, one of the legislative priorities, I'd gotten a group of about four presidents together that are in a contiguous geographic area at Piedmont Community College. And we were literally on the throes of meeting to figure out how we could put together about $200,000 between the five of our schools so that collectively we could hire our own regional cybersecurity officer. It's, It's that critical to our ability to deliver instruction.
1: Is it fair to say that the conversation around IT and IT needs has shifted uh, in the time you've been a president?
0: It it has. um, You know, for me, it's always been important, but it is um, it has definitely come to the forefront when you have schools like Central Piedmont and Guilford Tech. When you have especially when you've got larger shops. Right. I don't know that anyone was particularly shocked that a small school like mine with only four IT people um, experienced a ransomware attack. Right. But when you get the larger schools that have larger staffs, there's this perception that the size of the school somehow protects them from cybersecurity attacks, and that's what we're learning is that's not necessarily the case, right? Um, it's a very so. Um, I think we're all uh, thinking about this. We're aware of the cybersecurity attacks at the federal level. Um, we've had a number of municipalities. In fact, in Person County, our own Person County government was the victim of a ransomware attack as well. You know, so I, I think there's a general heightened awareness of the vulnerabilities uh, that we all have and the, and the increasing dependence that we all have on technology. And so we've got to, we've got to um, do a better job of guarding our infrastructure to make sure that we're not interrupting education while we're down trying to deal with these kinds of issues. We just have to get more serious about it.
1: Another priority coming up that's been on the docket for a number of years now is faculty pay. You and I have had some conversations uh, in group settings and one on one about this topic over the last couple of months. I'd love to hear your take on the importance of the, the faculty pay you know, portion of your agenda. But more specifically, if you have, you know, I'd love to hear your sort of day to day experience as being a president of an institution with a lot of faculty and staff who um, certainly are interested in the topic.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, part of what's on our legislative agenda is that we're asking for raises, right? Because we've not had a raise in three years. So that, that's, that's one piece of it. But the other piece of it is that the current guidelines that we have right now, um, they're not tied to the way in which we do business. And, I, and I'll give you an example of this. So our minimum pay guidelines for faculty are largely tied to academic credentials, well, it doesn't, that ignores the fact that there are market factors um, that actually are more important than a formal educational credential. You know, so I can get an English faculty member with a doctorate and then pay that person a minimum amount of money, but a welding instructor with a diploma, um, it, it forgets the fact that that welding instructor can make four times as much as what the minimum is based on our current criteria. And so that's the part that, as we're dealing with faculty pay issues, we need um, need allocations for high demand areas that would help us sort of bridge that gap where there are um, market demands or market issues. Um, We are increasing right now the number of IT cybersecurity classes that we're doing, but we're having to do it in partnership with another company because I don't have the faculty that have the credentials to be able to teach those classes. But yet there's a regional market need for our students and our population to have access to that kind of training. And so that that's the piece that we need. And again, you know, if you're a college where you're getting two and three cents of the property tax that's going directly to your institution, well then you get left out of that part of it. But for the other schools where there's not a county supplement, um like they often will do for public school teachers there's often a, a salary supplement for public school teachers that brings their their average pay up we're, we're not getting that kind of support for our faculty um and so th- this is this is the thing that just makes it really difficult for us to recruit faculty and then when you go several years without a raise it's also becomes um It's a morale issue. Um, People come to teach at community colleges because they want to teach, because they want to make a difference in people's lives. Um, I read the retirement letter of one of my faculty recently, and she said that I've been in love with the concept of teaching at a community college since a community college faculty member came and talked to my class when I was in high school. And she's taught with us pretty much ever since she went off and then got her master's degree in. Um, in the humanities area and has been teaching for us ever since. She's had a 50 year career with us. Those are the kinds of people that we have, but we shouldn't take advantage of them. We ought to reward um, people with who are willing to do that kind of work when they could make far more money in the marketplace um, and it's, it's time for us to reward them appropriately. And we're, we're so excited about the twin bills that have been introduced that, that are uh, proposing the 7% raises. We're excited about that. That's beyond what we requested. Um, but that, that will help bring our salaries of our faculty more in line with the faculty, um, not only at the public schools, but also at, the UNC, with, at UNC System schools. It's desperately needed. We need a lift in this area
1: building off of that you know one of the fears that a number of your um colleagues have raised in conversations with that i've had with them is that there's also going to be a rush of folks looking to change jobs post pandemic that the pandemic has created a pause um in job hunting job changing um, and as people vaccinate as the pandemic recedes i mean is that something that you're particularly cognizant of in your your county
0: we we believe that's the case you know i'm on the local hospital board And there is a real concern right now that there's going to be an exodus of healthcare workers into other careers. Um, Same thing with service workers, same thing with um, some of these other essential workers who've been working extra hours or um, longer shifts, those kinds of things under Ah, uh, difficult conditions. We think those are the folks who are going to be returning to our doors, looking to retool and to go into new areas. And I and I think that's that's going to be a trend that we see in our area and person in Caswell counties. But I think that's something we're going to see across the state and certainly across the country. I, I think our um, if we had a crystal ball, we we all feel pretty confident that that is one of the things that's going to happen. The, the The thing we can't quite figure out is what's the timing of it going to be. And again, I think that has to do with you know, at what rate do we get the right percentage of folks vaccinated within the community so that we can open things up even more? I think that there's gonna be, there's a real connection between those things and when folks will start to come back. But I certainly think um, that's what's going to happen. The other thing is that I think this pandemic has also helped some businesses make the decision to go ahead and make the investment in automation for some of their uh, job responsibilities. And so I think that post COVID, there are also gonna be a a number of jobs that just aren't coming back. I think, for example, um, I think one of the easiest examples is considering um, banking, um, actual banking facilities. And what banks have realized is that they can still do business with a fewer number of physical banking facilities and that customers will figure out how to do business with their bank other ways. And so post pandemic, Is it, you know, if I'm the CEO of a bank and I recognize that I've been able to successfully close a third of my banking locations and I could potentially sell those locations off, well then should I should I is that is that the right thing to do? And everything from industry is telling us that those are the kinds of decisions that industry is going to be making and that's gonna cause that churn that will bring people back to our doors to retool.
1: While we're on the topic of faculty and and recruiting and industry changes. Uh, you know, When you and I saw each other a few weeks ago, you spotlighted an article that my colleague, Michael, had written on the nursing board and some <laughs> potential licensure changes. Um, you were fired up about that, uh, to say the least. Uh, and I'd love to just have you share some of your thoughts and and reactions as this issue continues to play out. And so for listeners who aren't as familiar, Um, It might be helpful for you to also give them a little bit of context for uh, or stage setting for this this moment and this particular change.
0: Right. So so the North Carolina Board of Nursing in what I believe is is a is a genuine heartfelt desire to improve the quality of patient care has decided to go about that by requiring institutions to increase the percentage of their faculty with master's degrees from 50 percent to 80%, right? And this was a rule that was supposed to go into effect. I think sometime this year, we've kicked the can down the road. And so at this point, it's not supposed to go into effect until December of the end of this year. But hopefully this is gonna give us an opportunity to have some really good conversations with the Board of Nursing about what aspects of quality were they hoping to improve? And are there other ways to do that besides simply raising the educational requirements for faculty, which are already extraordinarily difficult to find, right? Because again, if you consider what are the market conditions for what you can earn with a master's in nursing versus what we can afford to pay you at a North Carolina community college, there's a huge gap already there. And then as a rural institution, what we have found when we have advertised for Um, nursing positions, especially those with masters, it's taken us a year to find those candidates. And so, you know, we've been often using the strategy of growing our own. So we'll find a great nursing faculty member and we'll invest in that nurse and we'll say, look, if you'll go back to school, um, then we'll help cover those costs. But even even that um, grow your own model it puts us in a bind. I can't even as a rural institution, you're cutting off my options to be able to deliver critical, uh, a critical part of our workforce that's just uh, we cannot do without it. Communities that can't staff their hospitals close their doors. You know, in my two county region, we have one hospital. And so the idea, And we are one of their primary vehicles for staffing any number of their positions from their EMT, to their paramedics, to their histologists, to their NAs, to their ADNs. We're one of their primary sources. You limit the number of nurses that we can crank out on an annual basis because of this, and that's gonna be the effect. Um, And I need people to understand that. If this rule goes into effect, That means I will have to lower the cap on the number of nursing students that I can allow in our program. Um, And that would be such a shame because we have been working so hard to improve the quality of what we're doing. Our pass rate is up. Um, Our students have nearly 100% um, employment uh, prior to graduation and that's something we're really proud of. And we have been working hard to, we'd like to start another section of, uh, ADN of another um, associate degree nursing program that would be a weekend model and our Caswell campus to meet some of the health needs that have been identified within that region as well. Um, but making me have to hire more master's nurses, it, um, it's gonna have such a negative effect in so many ways in our community. So I hope that the board of nursing and our community college system office staff are going to be able to have conversations to better understand what specific elements of quality they want to improve. And I think there's another way we can get to those things by looking at the curriculum, by learning, looking at the learning objectives. We can add new test questions. There are lots of other ways that we can do, that we can improve patient quality without simply doing an across-the-board, you-must-hire more, uh faculty members with master's degree. This is, this, is, this is not the right strategy.
1: Well, we've talked about some of the challenges uh, and, and also some of the opportunities. So let's, uh, let's end on a positive note. I have two more questions for you. First, you know, what are you optimistic about as you look ahead and see a potential end, as we all see a potential end horizon for COVID-19, um, either from you personally or where you sit as a president of a rural community college or both? Um, would love to know what what has you optimistic.
0: So the thing I'm the most optimistic about, um, as we look to hopefully a post-pandemic world, a couple of things. We've learned some really important lessons. Um, One, we've learned that we have to start asking every student, do you have access to a computer? And do you have access to high-speed internet access? And we weren't asking every student that question before. I think that's going to be um, a line of business we're doing we're doing distribution of those things through our library, and I think that that's going to be something we're forever going to be in that business. Particularly because of where I'm situated, right. The other thing I'm optimistic about is that hopefully this is going to make us get more serious as a country about um, what does it mean to what is what does high-speed rural broadband access mean to the country and to people's ability to have a good quality of life. And I think it's just as essential as having electricity, as having running water. Um, I think it's time for us to consider high-speed broadband access as as a basic common need. Um, Your ability to file for unemployment, it's something you're expected to do online. When you apply for the vast majority of jobs, you're expected to do that online. Um, young people who are in public schools right now are expected to upload their papers into Google Meets, which requires you to get online. This, this Without a statewide, without a federal plan for fixing this, we're, we're, we're just going to be widening the inequity gaps that we already have and hopefully this has highlighted the criticality of us focusing on this as a state and as a country so those are those are probably the things that i'm the most excited about and then some and i'm also excited that my faculty are telling me that all of hybrid learning isn't necessarily bad they're excited about some of the new tools that they can now use Uh, they're recording their lectures and the feedback we're getting from some of our students is that I really needed to listen to that lecture a couple more times and if it had all been face to face they wouldn't have had that same option and so every you know we're constantly asking ourselves what things what shifts have we made during covid should we keep because they're actually to the good of our community and to our students and so this has given us an opportunity to do that Um, we're going to be a better organization and we're going to be better able to serve more students as a result of having gone through this. It just accelerated um, a lot of the conversations that we probably needed to have had prior to the time. So in
1: closing, you know, we have a lot of folks who listen to this podcast who um, they themselves might aspire to be a president one day. Now, after the last year, you might, want, you might warn them <laughs> off from that. Um, but for the sake of those who may still be willing to, to pursue the, the role, um, w- would you just share a little bit about your your life's journey, and what led you to this moment, and any advice you have for them as we as we draw this episode of the Weight Fifty Eight podcast to a uh, close?
0: Nation, I have not changed my mind. This is still the best job ever. Um, there is no better job than getting to be the president of a community college because of how many people's lives we touch and we help transform. So, still best job ever, even in COVID. Um, for me, I started. Um, This is my 21st year, I can't believe it's been 21 years that I've been working in North Carolina community colleges. But prior to that, I was working for a Big Ten consulting firm, but I was still doing training related work. And then when I transitioned to a telecom company, I was still doing telecommunications work. And then I got laid off. It was such an eye opener for me about how the skills I'd acquired during that time in private industry translated um, and I was able to um, hang my, my shingle out as a contract trainer and was able to sort of keep things together because I'd, I'd acquired those skills. Well, then an opportunity came up at Central Piedmont to be their director of information technology training, and it was a perfect fit. And Nation, I fell in love. It, it literally felt like, as I reflect on it, it felt like falling in love because I continually was able to look around and see, opportunities for the institution to add more value to our community and then i kept being given the opportunity to implement those things and that's the great thing about community colleges we evolve um, we keep changing to adjust to the needs of our community and that's that's what makes us such a special place Um, the bigger thing that we are sort sort of one of the undercurrents that we're dealing with right now Are really looking at um, issues of student equity and so that's work that I'm excited that we are finally undertaking with a with a level of seriousness that I don't think we have before. And so that's the other opportunity that we have is to lift people um, out of the class that they're in into the next class nothing does that. Like higher education does so for those of you who are interested in in doing that and making that kind of an impact i think one of the best ways you can do that is to become um, a community college administrator and eventually become a president so um, every month I, I talk to at least two or three people who contact me on linkedin and ask for advice or ask for uh, next steps i've got a whole host of doctoral students that i'm mentoring um, I'd love to see the pipeline of folks who are interested in becoming college presidents just get uh, wider and wider because there are lots of retirements that are inevitably going to happen over the next decade. And we need people with a commitment and a heart to do this work. So please, please join us. We would love to we'd love to have you.
1: You heard Let it me there, know but... when you're
0: interested, Nation, because you, you just need I need to get you in a doctoral program, Nation, and then and then maybe, you know. Yeah, just let me know.
1: Well, everyone listening heard that she said even after the toughest year most of us have ever had, it's still a great job. So thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to getting back up to Piedmont here soon. Um, We really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure, thanks nation.
1: As always, thank you for listening to the Wake 58 podcast. For more community college content, our latest stories, research from across the state, or information that you can use in your daily life, check us out at ednc.org. If you have ideas for topics, people we ought to interview, or stories that we ought to tell, feel free to tweet us at Awake58NC.
0: That's Awake58NC on Twitter.